This podcast contains conversations around trauma, addiction, domestic violence, death, homicide, and other challenging subjects, and may be sensitive for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. If you need resources to get help, please see the show notes. You're listening to Drawn to a Deeper Story. I'm Kath Brew from drawntoastory.com. I'm an Australian artist who illustrates and educates about marginalised experiences for positive change, with a particular interest in identity, belonging and expat life. This podcast is about the lives that challenge us and the difficult conversations around them. It's a place to listen openly, to absorb people's truths and to learn how to show up differently for the benefit of everyone. The author, Sophie Babbage, talks about life shocks. She describes that they are unwanted and unexpected moments in our lives. They surprise us, they blindsight us, they shock us, they command our attention. Some bounce off us, others strike deep into our being. And these moments are collision points between how we see life and how life actually is. These are life shocks. There's no one who understands the impact of a life shock more than today's guest. Sue is a canine beautician and breeds poodles. I wanna give you an image of Sue. She's a gentle soul. She's incredibly kind. She's very small in stature. <laughs> and as I'm saying this, she's giving me symbols to show how small she really is. But she's also the type of person who would do anything for you. She's the person you want at your community fate because she's going to have organized the dog show, baked lots of cakes for the cake stall, collects things for the raffle. She's the person that turns up early to set up, stays late to pack down. And then she's also that person that gives other helpers a ride home. Yes, she's that person. Welcome, Sue. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. So imagine yourself working getting on with life, living with your husband, trying to get on with life generally like we all do. And then one day, one day life changes forever. The life shock is now your life. This is a big subject. And to be honest, I'm really not quite sure where to start with it. In 1996, Sue spent 10 weeks on a murder charge. Can you please give me some background to actually how that came about and what led up to you being on a murder charge? Yeah, well, I, we got married in 1990. Mm -hmm. My husband was a plumber and general sort of builder, and he worked for a man who had his own business doing household extensions and things. Mm -hmm. I was introduced to him by this man and we you know, we sort of hit it off together and he seemed interested so long as he liked the dogs, which he did. <laughs> and we went out on a few dates. And I remember he came with me to a dog show and uh, he wasn't really interested in the showing of the dogs. He liked the dogs, but he went off and I thought, well, he left me to show the dog. Mm. And he came back and I thought, gosh, he's had a few drinks mm. and apparently he'd had four pints and he was only a small frame. He was only mm. five foot four and mm. quite slim. I thought, where on earth did he put it all? Mm. Anyway, he was definitely a bit inebriated by the time we left. And I was a bit concerned. 
And I said to him, I said, yeah, that's quite a lot of beer. And he says, oh, that's nothing. Mm. And I felt like asking him, well, if that's nothing, what is something? Mm. But mm. I just didn't say anything. And that was the beginning of concern that, you know, he was quite a heavy drinker mm. and he needed it every day. Mm. So I'm a teetotaler, so I drink to me. I nothing interesting in yeah. at all. But, you know, we got on well, and in the end, a bit of pressure from my mother saying, it's about time you got married, you know. (laughs) Well, all right then. So we got married, but I was aware that he had a drink, not so much a problem at then. He did keep it quite well hidden, but smoke. And I thought, oh, I don't smoke either. I've got Mm. no vices. (laughs) Anyway, we sort of went on from there, and two years after we got married, his boss lost his job he went bankrupt it was the crash of the building trade Mm. that must have been what about 92 93 yeah Yeah. Mm. so his boss went bankrupt and disappeared off the scene leaving him high and dry with no job Mm. no income Mm. and there's me struggling to keep Mm. it going Mm. with only my dog income yeah he then gradually just sunk into more and more depression I managed to get him a few jobs with my clients but Mm. he's becoming a bit unreliable because Mm. he needed drink every Mm. day and it Mm. just got worse Mm. so Mm. he totally lost control and he could be quite aggressive and I felt quite threatened at times with psychological pressure on me Mm. to produce beer and fags Mm. every day regardless Mm. whether I've earned enough money or not it was, different. it was I didn't realize how much stress I was suffering from because mm. I wasn't aware it was a gradual process mm. Mm. anyway this went on for quite some time and I did try to get him some help by arranging appointments at the doctor mm. but he wouldn't turn up yeah. and his drinking you know he needed to be drunk before he went to bed and mm. the first thing he did when he woke up, was look for the can of beer, and it was strong special brew. Mm. Very it is one of those, and I'm on the floor. He mm. would have about eight cans. Mm. Wow! And the, this particular weekend, when it all kicked off, he'd had an awful lot of drink on the Saturday. I hadn't got any dog shows that weekend. I'd arranged for him to perhaps go and see somebody about doing a job. But he was so hungover from the day before, he Mm. wouldn't go. So Mm. I had to phone the client of mine, which I felt really embarrassed to do, to say, I'm sorry, Mm. we won't be coming. Yeah. So anyway, I got a bit cross with him and I just, in the end, I just got the hoover out and started hoovering and he was watching the telly and he shouted at me to turn the Mm. hoover off in sort of words that are unprintable. Please be aware that the next five minutes includes descriptions of domestic violence and homicide. Listener discretion is advised. Um, And he came at me and uh, knocked me against the wall. He was really just totally freaked out. He freaked me out, really. Mm. He was Mm. coming in to attack me. I I ran into the kitchen Mm. because I thought I've got to get out of here. So I went in the kitchen to the corner, turned round, and there he was coming at me. He'd ripped the wooden poodle, apricot poodle, that was mm-hmm. on the door, which was quite large. And he had it in his hand, and he said, I'm going to ram this down your throat. And wow. to, honestly, I stood there and I thought, yeah, you could do this. Mm. 
and I don't know how I would stop you. Terrifying, not knowing what would happen. Well, it was. Mm. And I, I actually put my hands out to brace myself and see if I could grab his arm with the poodle in it. Mm. Sounds a bit far-fetched, but that's how it happens. And my hand landed on top of the microwave and our kitchen knife was there. Mm. And my hand literally landed on the knife handle. Mm. And it... I grabbed it and of course I'm naturally left-handed but mm. the knife was on my right side so mm. I pulled it across in front of me and said look I've got a knife but mm. he never took any notice his propulsion towards me was such and he was so enraged at this point he just mm. ran straight onto it and it went through his ribs punctured his heart wow and then um he sort of collapsed to the floor in a heap mm. the ho- it seemed everything went quiet all mm. the shouting had stopped mm. and I was still there with a the knife in my hand because mm. I hadn't pushed it in and he pulled away and sunk to the floor and his back was towards me. So I didn't know what was happening the other mm. side. Mm. So I stood there absolutely in shock and, sh- mm. and shaking. I was say, what on earth and, was going through your mind? Well, like, I, I didn't even know it, it punctured him because mm. I was looking at him mm. and not the knife. I looked at the knife and saw there was a very thin um smear of blood on it so I mm. thought oh my god I must have stabbed him mm. so I called him no response and very gradually I walked round so that I was the other side of him mm. and to my shock there was this huge pool of blood coming out from his chest area looked like a spill from an oil tanker mm. it was very slow very dark red mm. Mm. so I thought bloody hell yeah what am I going to do? And how quickly your life changes from yeah. dealing with a situation to then suddenly, yeah. oh my God, what That's am I... Exactly. I thought, well, I ain't going to be able to fix that with a Band-Aid. No. It was getting a bigger and bigger spread mm. of blood on a bright mm. yellow kitchen floor Ooh, smell. Yeah. So, mm. Oh, mm. It so was, what did you... Well, I phoned straight away 999. I spoke to a policeman and he said, what's happened? I said, well, I think I've stabbed my husband, but I couldn't see any... No. All I could see was this huge pool of blood. Yeah. Oh dear, madam. He said, well, no, I think I better have an ambulance as well. This was a Sunday lunchtime, mm. you know, in darkest February, mm. February the 18th. Mm. And within about five, 10 minutes, I'd run into my across the hall because I was living in some flats then. Mm. And I said, oh God, come over. So she came running in and screamed. So by that time, there was a wail of, of mm. sirens, police cars, an ambulance. Mm. They all rushing in. Mm. All the curtains were twitching around. Not much mm. happens on a dark February no. morning, you know. So anyway, they all rushed upstairs. So the ambulance people came in the kitchen first. Mm. And the police went off in the other room after assessing what was going on I still had the knife in my hand he said right can you just put the knife down on the table it was like my hand was Mm. rigid I I had a job to open it up to Mm. let the knife because I was Mm. gripping it so tight so I put it down the paramedic could see I was in shock Mm. and said look go and sit in the other room where the police were and my friend who was having hysterics and the police didn't really know who was the one that mm. called them because mm. she was there having hysterics. Yeah. I was in, in mm. a shock, but not making a lot of sense. Mm. After a bit, they worked out it was me. They eventually took Robert away. He was apparently was still alive. Mm. He wasn't communicative at all. So uh, they took him downstairs and then the police started asking me questions and all sorts of relaying what happened. And then they said, do you have a shoebox? And I said, and that sort of threw me mm. a, a bit because everything went quiet. And I thought, 
have I got a shoe box? I don't think I do because you don't keep shoe boxes these no. days. Was that to put the knife in? Yeah. Was well, that... I didn't realise mm. that. But I did find mm. a Pringle container. So he tipped the Pringles out and it was just oh. the right length yeah. to put it in. Yeah. Why do you want a shoe box? He said to put the knife in. Oh, mm. so he emptied out the Pringles and knocked all the bits of pieces out. Mm. And he stuck the knife in there and then they took it took away. And what um, happened to you? Where... At some point, he must have said, right, I'm arresting you on grievous bodily harm. Mm. I wasn't really concentrating, but they took me and the dogs downstairs. I still had hold of the four dogs. Mm. And one of my neighbours from another flat came and they took the dogs. I got in the police car and I was driven away. And mm. I said, well, where are we going? I hadn't given mm. any thought about the seriousness of my situation mm. at that point. Well, you were in shock. Well, going, we were going to the police station and they stopped almost back out on the main road when another police car stopped opposite and this man with legs like lampposts I tell you he was so tall mm. he come marching across and got in the car and sat next to me it was like I was like shrunk in this corner mm. absolutely not knowing what was going on mm. and what was going to happen mm. we went to the police station and I was initially going through the process of being a going through you know mm. the arrest and then yeah. I had to go with a couple of police women to check whether I had anything hidden in mm. orifices you yeah, wouldn't yeah. normally want to look yeah, into. Yeah, absolutely. And then I had to go and see a medical examiner. Mm -hmm. I had to go through all sorts of processes there, mm. blood samples, mm. mouth swabs, everything to get DNA. Like, but yeah. there was nothing really because mm. I had, he hadn't actually physically touched me. He got mm. the knife before mm. he managed to hit me. Mm. The poodle was dropped on the floor, which mm. someone else picked up. So I was then taken... For interview, and by that time, Robert was declared dead. So mm -hmm. I was now officially a murderer. What I know of you is you're like Mrs. Joe Blogs. That's the I know. Woman, just the yeah. woman in the village that gets on with life. And to suddenly have that, I mean, that's heavy, heavy stuff. Definitely. And I mean, I didn't know that apparently he, they've done a post-mortem on him and it found out that he had early cirrhosis of the liver caused by excessive drink uh, no other mm. symptoms so yeah I had to officially be charged from just doing bodily harm mm. to actually killing somebody mm. and that literally just threw me I just didn't know what to do I was worried about the dogs and my whole life was like come to a halt mm. they were having difficulty getting a hold of my parents mm. they were working and I couldn't remember what the name of the road was I couldn't mm. remember anything it no. was all my head was just in a whirl they said oh I need a solicitor and I said well I can't afford it oh well we'll provide one for you I was put in this cell while all these things were being arranged mm. and it was just like a square box with glass bricks in the top you couldn't mm. see out mm. and it was huge and it mm. had a little place that was a toilet mm. and a bed mm. and that was it I felt like a tiny little insect mm. in this huge room mm. and every so often I'd see a pair of eyes peering at me through the through the gap through the, the, gap, door. the mm. door and I was just sat there not wondering well what on earth happens next yeah. you know and uh then uh, this policeman um he seemed like a top policeman. He had all the paraphernalia, an older man. He came mm. in and he looked very embarrassed. And he said to me, um, I'm very sorry, but you're going to have to go through all those processes 
of DNA collection again. I said, well, why? Mm. He said, well, he didn't really say, but I think what it was, the initial collection was before my husband had died. So Mm. now that he died and I was officially charged with murder, Mm. then the whole process took on a different... A whole new thing. Yeah, Mm. much Mm. more intense. Mm. I go marching back and he went through the whole process all over again. Mm. After all that, go back to to the cell stay there for a bit and then a a solicitor turns up so Mm -hmm. I go into another room and he said well this is quite a serious charge Mm. I hadn't really sunk in yet the reality of what you were facing yeah Yeah. Mm. so we went through what's likely to happen we go into another room which is then you've got the two other policemen in there my solicitor and two people the CID Mm. one sat one end of the table I was facing a wall and they had all the recording equipment there and I think it was about two and a half hours of questioning yeah right from the very beginning Mm. right up to the present day Mm. and Mm. I was totally exhausted and I'd also gone down with a cold on the Friday Mm. and my throat was raw Mm. And I could hardly speak at the end. Mm. And the sister mm. said, look, we're not getting any further. Mm. I think she's told you all that you mm. need to know. Mm. And then I was put back in the cell. Mm. They brought me some food, which I just couldn't eat. Mm. How long were you in the cell? Well, I was there for two and a half days. I was due to go into court for 10 o'clock Tuesday morning. Mm-hmm. But because I, I couldn't sleep and mm. they gave me a sleeping pill and I hadn't really woken up properly so they couldn't do it but what I found very strange and it's something I wanted to talk to the FME about but I never saw him again in the middle of the night I found myself on the ceiling but not touching the ceiling Mm. but right up high Mm. Mm. and I was looking down at myself like an experience yeah lying Mm. on the Oh, apparently I must have gone to sleep and fallen off the bed. So they just came in and put a blanket over mm-hmm. me and left me. Mm-hmm. But I saw it all. Wow. I saw the door open. I saw the lady policewoman who came in and said, oh, gosh, we'll just leave her where she is. And they said, oh, do you think we ought to get the FMA? It was in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. No, she said she'd just sleep it off. Mm-mm. But I was up watching all wow. this, watched them coming in, yeah. listening to what they were saying. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, then all sorts of questions were going through me. Have I died? Mm. Am I, is this my body wanting to leave and it can't get out the cell? Mm. Was this my spirit? Mm. I mean, all these Mm. things were Mm. going through me Mm. while I was hovering right at the top of Mm. the ceiling, looking at me Mm. on the floor. Mm. Some kind of trauma response to thing that you've just experienced yeah I was questioning myself I said well have I died what if I have what happens now do I get back in my body or is that Mm. it have I left Mm. so what happened then well I woke up in the morning all these questions I had no answers to Mm. in the morning the door opened and I was looking up at somebody and I'd obviously gone back in Mm. or is it your spirit is it your I have no idea no. and I haven't had a chance to talk to anybody who no. knew what, yeah, what yeah. I've, mm. this out-of-body experience mm. people talk about them mm. but having physically yeah. had one was weird because yeah. I had no so, one to discuss it no. with I said is this normal <laughs> nobody to ask mm. Mm. anyway I was glad to be back in my body because mm. I thought oh it wasn't very nice being up on the ceiling mm. Mm. so this was now 
Tuesday lunchtime. Mm-hmm. They put my court case till two o'clock mm-hmm. because I wasn't fit to no. go in in the morning. How were you uh, feeling at that point? That's, well, that's I was I was not really with it at all. Mm. I didn't have to say much. They asked me my name and I told them and mm. that was it really. Mm. My solicitor said, well, you might be on remand. And he was thinking, now, which one could we send you to? Mm. Would it be Holloway? Would it be mm. this? Would it be mm. that? And I was like, I just didn't care. Mm. I'd had a word that my dogs were gone to different friends. So I thought, right, I don't have to worry about them at the moment. But I imagine uh, it'd be all a bit of a blur as well. I can't even comprehend the processing that would have been going on for you, regardless of lack of sleep and taking a sleeping pill and all the kind of stuff that would affect your body. But the the physical trauma response for you, all the chemicals coming into your body. Yeah, well, what I didn't realise was that the word had gone out that this had happened, Mm. and I'm very well known in the dog world. Mm. It went viral that I was where I was. They had people phoning up sending cards and Mm. and treats and things Mm. and they said they've never had anyone like me in with so many people wanting to support whilst you were still in the police station yeah this was all coming in on the monday and they went to the dog club which is i'm been there now what 50 years Mm. and asking questions about me was i a loner you know usual sort of thing and everyone said no she's absolutely wonderful and Mm. she would know a fly they couldn't find anyone who'd Mm. had anything nasty or horrible Mm. to say about me Mm. one of the detectives went to talk to robert's previous lady lived with and she said yes she had trouble with him with his Mm. drinking Mm. and he put her in hospital this policeman said to me you know her statement does you no harm whatsoever because you now got history of abuse physical and and mental yeah i wanted to ask you what happened when it happened did anyone fall away or did people they obviously knew you so well yeah no i i still managing to do my trimming i had to explain to people I was given bail, which mm. is unusual in a murder case. Yeah. But because I wasn't considered a danger to anybody, I got a 10 weeks bail, which mm. I had to go to a police station. I had to stay with my parents twice a week. Mm. So I had to work that in around my job. But it was my job and my dogs that sort of kept me going. Yeah. How did she cope in that, that 10 weeks? What got you through until you knew... Well, I had a lot of friends around me. I used to go to friends who I would talk and talk and talk and talk. It's a way of just Mm. getting all the stress out. Mm. And they were very good. They'd listen over and over. Yeah. And I had to go and see a psychiatrist. I went to the hospital and talked to one guy. And he said, how do you feel about it? Do you feel any remorse? And I said, to be honest I don't know how I feel Mm. I've never been in this situation before my feelings changed by the minute yeah one minute I would feel angry that Robert had pushed me into this position that I had to defend myself and Mm. this is what happened Mm. then I'd feel angry at myself for not recognizing that this was gonna come to a head at yeah. some point yeah. and make a better effort of getting him seen mm. but I did and but mm. he wouldn't ever turn up and hindsight hindsight's a wonderful yeah. thing but it's also really damaging if I said mm. to him oh I think you're becoming an alcoholic he'd deny it differently and said no he enjoys a drink but he's not an alcoholic Mm. but he was just in denial Mm. and I didn't know many alcoholics none Mm. at all so I didn't Mm. know the pattern Mm. because Mm. not coming from a a house where we had drinks Mm. so I'd never come up 
against anyone who has drink problems. Mm. Never heard of Al-Anon, which is for families and relatives of drinkers. I felt angry with myself and then I'd feel very upset because it seemed my whole life had been turned upside down just trying Mm. to protect myself and if he killed me what would have happened you know it was a very difficult situation and my emotions I was on like a permanent roller coaster Mm. I'd have highs and lows Mm. and my doctors kept giving me antidepressants for when I was low Mm. and then I'd be on antipsychotics Mm. I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and I had bipolar Mm. for about a year or more Mm. where I couldn't control when I was high and the pills were always on catch-up because they never worked straight away so my antidepressants would kick in when I was already high yeah and then that would send me even higher then I'd have to have extra drugs to bring me back down it was all over the place I I can't can't imagine that roller coaster where your body's just reacting you've got no control yeah well I didn't as I say Mm. to the psychiatrist I said I just don't know how I feel because you ask me in five minutes time and I feel something totally different Mm. and he said well stay close to your doctor my dear and that was it and I was Mm. living in the blimmin doctors because Mm. I just didn't want to go home my Mm. mind would be thinking right with will I have to go to prison and what Mm. how will I cope in prison what would happen to me dogs yeah would I go for a long time I mean Mm. it was a murder charge for goodness sake and presumably you're back living in the flat where it happened no I never Have went back to that you flat. Oh, no okay. I lived with my parents up to the time of when I was due to go back to the court after the 10 weeks to decide what they were going to do from then on I'd had a moment of madness I tried to um, commit suicide mm. and that didn't work my dog put a paw on my wrist as I was hurtling towards a brick wall and and that pulled me back straight away thinking oh god this isn't just my life it's Mm. my dog's life but Mm. she actually put a paw on my wrist she must have known but it was enough of a time that I could suddenly realize what was happening I was able to drag the car around a sharp corner and thankfully there was no one coming the other way because I was right on the wrong side of the road was that you just wanting just to stop well I'd had a very intensive meeting with the solicitor who said look you don't realize how serious this Mm. is Mm. and I'd worked really hard to be of a compassmentous state when he wanted to do a a big interview with me and I felt really angry because Mm. I had worked so hard to be able to be not calm but able to explain everything yeah Yeah. Yeah. and he thought that I was taking it too lightly Mm. because I really struggled Mm. to Mm. be Mm able to tell him everything Mm, mm, he expected me to be more um, Mm. emotional Mm. and I was so angry with him I think that's it I'm just gonna do and I I thought for my parents Mm. would they want to keep coming up Mm. to some prison to see me so I thought if I do myself away now then that's it it's over for them it's over for me Mm. but it wasn't meant to be obviously well and I'm jolly glad you didn't yeah (laughs) so and once I stopped and literally I just shook and cried and cried and shook and it was just the raw emotion was just pouring out me realizing I could have just killed myself yeah and I was so angry with the solicitor Mm. for not taking me seriously Mm. that I actually went back and I walked right in his office the the um receptionist said oh you can't go in there but luckily he didn't have anyone in there and I Mm. went right up to his chair and I let him have it 
I had all this emotion coming out and he was sat in his chair you know he couldn't go back any further and I let him know how I felt Mm. and then I just Mm. turned around and walked out yeah and I then felt as if everything had drained out of me yeah I felt like often I was like a badly shaken can of Coke, mm. which suddenly you take the lid off yeah, and all this stuff comes out. Yeah, that's a really good analogy, actually. Pressure all the time. Oh, like, absolutely. But, but what what fascinates me is that you had the pressure when you were married and, and Robert was alive and that slowly building up. Yeah. And then this catastrophic thing happens. I didn't realise how stressed I was no. until it all happened. Mm. The psychiatrist gave me a psychologist mm. and I had this woman for six months and that helped a lot because she was able to sort of crack the, the badly shaken can mm. of drink mm. up. Yeah. And very gradually release the pressure rather than just take the lid off straight away. You get this sort of fizzing Mm. coming out Mm. until you've got that fizz out and then you've just got Coke flat. But every time it was just like having a Band-Aid put over a gaping wound. It soon fell away and the gaping wound was still there. In the time I've known you, we've always kind of said it with a smile, but we've always talked about you having a high startle factor. I still do. And I wanted to ask you about that. Can you tell me more about the residual impacts on you today well yes I have um a high anxiety rate Mm. it doesn't take much to get me stressed Mm. so yes I have a high startle and I'm really jump Mm. and that's basically that's what it's left me with Mm. also I never wanted to get anywhere close to another bloke Mm. I think that's why two years later I was um a very strange way shown the church at Mm. MCC because Mm. There were no blokes there that I felt scared of. And the women, you know, I was very friendly with everyone, Mm. but I wasn't going to be a threat. But emotionally, I was not attached Mm. to any of them. Mm. But they were there to be friends for me. But going back to the after effects, after the inquest, the case was dropped. I had no case to answer Mm. for. I acted in self-defence and my own personal history and those of others. Mm. There was no further mm. case to, to go for, mm. so I just walked away. How do you go from having a murder? It a was, murder it was very, very difficult because it was a steady build-up over the 10 weeks that I was coming to this sort of cliff, mm. the edge of the cliff, to know what was going to happen. Holding that. Yeah, and uh, my solicitor phoned me as it was a Friday evening and I was due to go back to court on the Monday. Mm. And I was with a friend, thankfully. He phoned up and he said that the the your court case on Monday's been cancelled and you no longer have a murder charge hanging over you. I said, well, how can that happen? He said, look, just accept it, mm. that as far as they're concerned, you have no case to answer. You acted in a, a mm. self-defensive mm. role and just put it behind you, but it never goes away. You can't. No. What, I mean, what, and then I had all the, all the uh, television outside... Mm. They were waiting to interview me. Mm. I had all sorts of um, people wanting to interview me. People from a magazine come and Mm. want my story. Mm. I was out walking with the dogs on one occasion. A lady recognised me. She just came over and she said, my dear, if it hadn't been for your story and what happened to you, I would never have had the courage to leave my husband because Mm. she was heading in that direction with her Mm. husband. And she Mm. said, what your case has made me 
decide that I can't go on anymore living this this fright mm. and this fear mm. she would have probably ended up in the same way right, and yeah. uh, that wasn't the only person who would talk to me about mm. that mm. and then a year later I was asked to go on the Kilroy Silk program mm -hmm. I said oh I don't, I don't know it's dragging it all back not that it ever mm. went away but mm. But they said, well, people would be interested in your story and um, mm. you might be able to help other people um, go all the way to London. There were all sorts of people there, similar circumstances to myself. Mm. It's the first time I actually met other women who had been, been in a similar mm. situation. People to talk to. Yeah, first time. Mm. Did you um, find that helpful? Yes, that? I did. Yeah. And also there were people there, psychologists, doctors, mm. people who dealt with this sort of thing. But it did open Mm. up to me that, that I'm not the only one who's been in this situation mm. Mm. it never went away and it mm. still doesn't 25 years later it's like mm. it was yesterday mm. it's constantly there I am carrying this what image of what happened in my kitchen mm. it will be with me forever mm. Mm. so I sort of got used to talking about it now mm. the fact that I went from a murder charge to nothing mm. not even probation mm. and a lot of people couldn't understand that mm. I said it's been like me being a fish dangling on a hook mm. for 10 weeks mm. and then they decided I'll just cut the wire and let me go yeah. and the yeah. stress of mm. living with that and mm. the guilt I felt it's almost like survivor's guilt mm. where you feel should I be punished then again mm. I think well no I only defended myself mm. we are legally allowed to defend ourselves and mm. I didn't have much time to think about it no and just... if the law has cleared you and it's been investigated then you, you go with that but it's never that simple what happens in your mind and I mean I've spoken to people who have been inside and they've talked about how difficult it is with what your mind does and the ruminating and the conversations that you're having with yourself yeah. so equally it may not be being punished by the law but there's this memory that replaces oh them. it's it was it's constant it goes round and round and round I mean I deal with it better mm. I'm not on any more antipsychotic drugs or tranquilizers mm. or mm. antidepressants mm. but it doesn't take much no. for things to Close trigger to I'd like to ask you about mm. MCC, the, the Metropolitan Community Church that you went to, just for listeners who don't know, is um, pretty much known as a, the gay church. Again, mm. Most of the men, if not all, at that time and possibly now, were gay men. And so for you, it would have been a very safe space to go to in that regard. Yes, I, I didn't know anything much about MCC. Two of my clients were a gay couple. Mm -hmm. And I trimmed their dog for quite a while. I said, oh, I'm getting so fed up at weekends with nothing to do, no, no dog shows, just getting more and more depressed. And he said to me, he said, why don't you come to our church for an evening? If nothing else, it's a night out. And I mm. hadn't been anywhere apart from the dog club and just work. Yeah. Because I just didn't feel uh, I could do it. I, mm. Mentally, I wasn't fit no. enough, really. No. So I thought, oh, I don't know. I haven't been to church for 20 years. So... He gave me a booklet. I flipped through it and I thought, oh, I don't know. Funny enough, I put it in a drawer mm -hmm. rather than bin it. Mm. And I never thought any more about it till 11 days later. It was Sunday the 15th of February. But it was about quarter past six in the evening and I was flicking through the TV. And there was this voice. It was like all around me. Mm. And it said, go to church, go now. I couldn't describe the voice. It was very, very powerful. Mm. And I looked at the dogs and they hadn't moved. So I thought, <laughs> well, they hadn't heard it. No. And then 
I thought, well, I must have, must have imagined it. You know, mm. been on so many drugs, you just don't know. Yeah. Anyway, a few moments later, the voice came back again, but it was in my head this time. Mm. Go to church. Go now. I remember that. I did. That mm. is, I did hear it. Yeah, yeah. So I thought, well, what church am I supposed to go to then? I went into the bedroom and found it, a leaflet in a drawer, and I looked at it. It said 6.45. I looked at the time. It's 20 past six. But I've never had this experience mm. before. Curiosity got the better of me. And the voice came again, but much more urgent. Go to church. Go now. I knew more or less where it was because I'd been past the road. Not, not really been in the road, but I knew where it was. So I told the dogs to stay and I got in the car and I drove there. And I felt there was this initial sort of excitement and yet fear and yet I just felt like I was being pulled. There was a cluster of people around the doorway and this bloke in a white um, priest outfit. Mm. I looked across at the same time. He looked across at me and I felt this strange shiver go down my spine mm. and a tingling all over. This is crazy. Anyway, I went and parked the car and I walked back. I could feel people's eyes on me wondering, oh, who's she? Yeah, new, newcomer. <laughs> newcomer. And then the service started and mm. it was wonderful because I, they were singing songs that I knew from my school. Mm. It was the most wonderful service and I felt safe mm. i felt comfortable mm. and yet i didn't know any of these people mm. apart from my clients and then uh, communion came up my client said oh do you want to come up for communion with me and i said oh i don't know i've never had communion he said oh come on it won't you, you know you might enjoy it i decided at the end i would so we got to the end of the line it was quite a busy mm. evening and we were at the back and i mean there's me about four foot 10 him six foot five we looked stupid we really did anyway the line was sort of slowly moving forward and then I felt something touch me on the shoulder enough to look round to mm. see who it was there's nobody there but the voice was back really and it said you have suffered enough you have carried this burden for two years now is the time to be relieved of this weight and to live wow. only by forgiving can you yourself feel forgiven when the understanding of these words grow in you, will your journey from your darkness to my light begin? And it was like, wow, where Bloody did that hell. come from? And this is 25 years yeah, later, I, you've it's, just said that. Like, it's never left me. Wow. It's never left me. That's incredible. It, yeah. And, and it took me quite a few months to work out only by forgiving can you yourself feel forgiven mm. and that took me a long time yeah, to get around do. that mm. and I was also having counseling by an occupational therapist he came almost every week to my flat mm. and uh it took me quite a long time and then the Easter because this was February the 15th now the actual second year anniversary was the Wednesday because it was the 18th of February but on mm. a Sunday to Sunday it was two years to the day mm. so yeah it, it really threw me that mm. and I've never forgotten it but also so, holding that the idea of forgiveness is that holding what we haven't forgiven yet is incredibly time consuming and energy consuming. oh absolutely you, there's a lot that goes into that so to release that is also incredibly difficult because it's become familiar and known and releasing it is like oh what do I do now like how yeah it, it's trying to get used to that new state and it can be really scary yeah well I, I sort of went over and over it 
because I was in some kind of wilderness mm, at that time. Absolutely. It struggled really at the time to forgive Robert for putting me in that position where mm. the outcome was that I will always be known as someone who's killed their husband by mm. accident or otherwise, yeah. Yeah. you know, and I felt I couldn't forgive him for destroying my life, basically. Mm. You know, I've got that to live with for the rest mm. of my life. Luckily, my customers and my dog friends all stood by me. So that was a constant Mm. and my work was a constant. But I felt such guilt that I hadn't done enough to get him help with Mm. his uh, alcoholism. Mm. You know, could I have done anything more? Could Mm. I have tried harder? Mm. Was it my fault? Because I was buying him the drink. Mm. If I didn't, it was a nightmare. And for an easy easy life, you you would just Mm. buy him the beer as much as he wanted or as he'd have a rage Mm -hmm. and then that was where I felt the biggest guilt Mm. although I tried to get him to have help Mm. but he wouldn't didn't want to know he wouldn't accept he had as an alcoholic and if someone's got an addiction there's no reasonable conversation around that like if someone from an addiction point of view needs their fix they're going to get it yeah so I had to try and forgive him because I was feeling such anger towards him for putting me in the position in the first place that this happened I couldn't forgive myself for allowing his state to Mm. get to the stage it was Mm. where we had to have this awful experience Mm, mm. and that was going to live with me forever he's Mm, dead he hasn't got that problem i'm Mm, living with it permanently for life Mm, mm. so yes only by forgiving those words go over and over over again Mm. and do you find those words come back to you in everyday circumstances now so even if someone wrongs you no it's just with him Mm. but that was what was my problem at the time when I was called to the church. I was constantly asking questions because it was only a couple of months after I started there that the voice was back. Mm. You will write a book. I want you to write a book. I thought, what? This was sometime in the night I woke Mm. up with these words. I said, I'm not a writer. I'm a dog groomer. Go away. Then I felt a bit guilty. Oh, dear. What have I said? Who is it actually speaking to me? It's at the same person who told me to go to church and and I'm still writing this book Mm. 25 years on. But the (laughs) thing is with write a book, on something that's like this, you can't just sit down and write it. No, I couldn't. I had to be in the right mindset. You're revisiting that in a way that's really present. Yeah, revisiting it all the time. Yeah. Yes, it's a lot to go through. And mm. so, yeah, I walked away from that, but I felt as if I'd just been tossed aside, you know, mm. like the fish that just got the line cut and mm. you go away with a sore mouth because you still got the hook in it. Mm. And uh, you're just left to like just mm. swim around and not know quite what was going on. And, and how you process something like that, that for 10 weeks, you well, before that, the five years of being married before, yeah. and then the 10 weeks of thinking that, your life is going to be in in jail forever or whatever yeah. like going through the process so if in having these kind of conversations now you talked about meeting that woman in the park who thanked you for yeah. having your story publicly what do you hope from this podcast that will actually come from conversations like these you know if there are people out there a lot of people suffer with husbands or wives or mm. girlfriends boyfriends who have addiction problems 
And it's a very lonely place to be in because in my case, I didn't want to let my friends know that I was having difficulty with my husband and that he could be very abusive, very and psychologically damaging me. I didn't realise how badly it was till afterwards. Mm. And people try not to show that behind closed doors, a lot of things go mm. on. He mm. didn't go out to drink. Yeah. I just hope that in some cases there is light at the end of the tunnel mm. and also to do something about it before it gets to the stage where, like me, I was threatened with my life. Mm. Mm. So I'm hoping that maybe someone like that lady who said, yeah. you know, she made her make that decision to leave her husband. Yeah. yeah. And what happened to me could so easily have happened to her. Mm. Yeah. I think these horrendous things happen and you've also had so much of your life completely out of your control because you're at the whim of dealing with the well, Oh, right. Um, and I found that coming to the church was so good for me because I hadn't really mixed with anyone else and I was learning to live with my horrendous memories. And, and it, it was different when I was called to the MCC because mm. as a straight woman, mm. I was in an environment surrounded by gay men and women. Mm. And I'd never even met many gay, and I never knew what a transsexual was mm. or transgender. I had a few friends at the dog clubs that were gay partnerships. I was in poodles, and mm. yeah, that's a sort of breed that they, they like. <laughs> yeah. So I had quite a few gay friends. You know, you meet them at the yeah. shows, you yeah. say hi, and you yeah. enjoy their company. And but, that was it. Yeah. And I never even knew that MCC existed. Mm. And when I was sat there in this full church, feeling totally surrounded by strangers, I felt as if I'd come home, mm. but to an environment I'd never had yeah. any dealings with. Yeah. I felt so comfortable. I didn't feel threatened by either the men or the women mm. because I'm not, you know, I'm mm. sort of sitting in the middle. Yeah. And as time went on, I would try to help them with their their um, breakups, yeah. which could be a bit extreme at times. I would be, oh, okay, well, never mind. We'll, we'll talk about mm. it. Churches are generally welcoming to, to newcomers, but I also wonder to what degree that their experiences of being a marginalised group helped welcome someone from the outside and actually yeah. bring you in and provide a safe space. For well, them. I've written about that. I, it's like I was a minority within a majority, mm. where Who normally are, I'm mm. a majority amongst a minority. Yeah. It was very interesting because I felt accepted because I was no threat. Mm. I wasn't going to pinch other girls' girlfriends. <laughs> and the boys weren't really, well, no. not much use to me anyway. No. <laughs> and I was no interest in having another relationship with anybody. Yeah. I felt okay. sheltered and comfortable. In, and also I got involved with the fundraising. I would help in the kitchen. I'd run dog shows mm. and other social events. Although I was one of the very few mm. straight women mm. there, mm. There wasn't one person who said to me, we don't want you here. Mm. But I felt as if the church was well chosen yeah. to get me out of my wilderness, yeah. to bring me to a place where I felt I could start a new life mm. and with people I felt um, safe with. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. And on that note, I think I'd like to end on that because I think that's absolutely beautiful summing up of where you've got to now yeah like, yeah I want to say thank you hugely for your willingness to share from the challenges you've faced and grown through but just to talk because it's such a story that we hear so often in the news so thank you very much for joining me today thank you for inviting me thank you so 
If you have a deeper story that you'd wish to share with listeners, challenges you've faced and grown through or you still might be dealing with, then please do get in touch with me at drawntoastory.com. You've been listening to Drawn to a Deeper Story with Kath Brew. Thanks for joining me and goodbye.